Thanks for joining us today at the Vine Church. We're one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this service with others and give by clicking the link below. For now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. church let's celebrate our chains are gone the grave is empty and we have Jesus on the inside come on let's sing the passion of our Savior the mercy of our God the cross that leaves no question of the measure of his love and our chains are gone our dead is paid and the cross has overthrown the grave for Jesus' blood that sets us free means death guilty while this guilty one walked free death would be his portion and now I portion liberty sing it out cause our chains are gone and our
is so much life in this room right now as we celebrate what God's done for us on the cross. Amen. It's a new year. And we're going to get an opportunity this year to, to set some things right with God, I think. He's inviting us into a new season. He's asking us to worship differently than we ever did before. He's revealing himself in ways that we haven't seen before. And when we see him, scripture says we will be like him. How many of you guys want more of God than 2019? Come on, listen, he is worthy. And he, that's a promise, that's the kind of ask that he wants to answer in our lives. As we gather here in this moment, just we're gonna take a moment here before the Lord and just offer ourselves to God and ask him to do the thing that we're asking for. God, we want more of you. And if you want more of God, I want you to just make this next song your prayer and believe by faith that he's gonna answer it this year. That at the end of 2019, we're gonna look different than we did today. So come on, let's sing together.
Happy New Year. Happy Year. Man, you guys are way more awake than 915. When I said Happy New Year, they're like, Happy New Year. Yeah. Um, it's great to be with you guys. For those of you that I haven't met yet, my name is David Walters. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the Vine Church. And it is an honor and a privilege to be with you as we kick off a brand new year, uh, not just in the, the life of our church, but also uh, in like our calendar life. And with the beginning of new years comes new things. And we've got a brand new series that we're kicking off today called New You. And we'll get to that in just a second. How many of you, by show of hands, you have some form of a New Year's resolution? You've got some resolutions out there? Uh, go ahead and raise your hands high. How many of you have some like goals? You'd call them goals. You've got new goals. Yeah. And how many of you have like a new word for the year? You've got a new word for the year. Yeah. If you've got your hands raised, that means that you're a part of about 84% of our country's population who's decided that with the turn of a new calendar, you're going to add some New Year's resolutions, some new goals or a new word that you're going to live into in some form or fashion. Uh, so that means that if you did not have your hands raised, you're in the minority and you need to get on board with the rest of us. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, but how many of you who has one of those lists of new things, new resolutions, new words, you've already given up on it? Like you're already like done. You're only six days in and anybody willing to confess that as church, safe place. Jesus died for you. It's good. Um, anybody? Yeah. At 9.15, we had like half the hands go up. It was awesome, uh, which proves a point that over the course of the next six weeks, about 92% of the 84% that have established New Year's resolutions, new goals, a new word that they're going to live into are going to actually give up on that. And they're going to give up on that by about the sixth week of the year or the second week of February, which means if you go to a gym and you don't have a treadmill or a barbell because there's so many people that are going there, just hang on. In about six more or five more weeks, you'll be back to having your own thing. 
And, uh, and so that's good news for some of you. Um, most people, though, about 80% of the 92% that give up on their New, Year res- New Year's resolutions, they actually give up on day two. I mean, it doesn't take very long, okay? Because day two comes around, it's a little bit harder day two, and so they jump off the, the wagon, and, uh, and they have already quit their New Year's resolutions. It got a little tough at our house. So our house, we decided on January 2nd that we were going to establish some uh, kind of a new, like, uh, healthy lifestyle of eating for our entire family, especially coming off of the holidays. We kind of binged a little bit. Anybody else do that over the holidays? Yeah, uh, we were talking with some friends who thought that they had maybe gained about eight pounds over <laughs> the holidays. And uh, so we were like, hey, on January 2nd, um, because you got to sneak in that last day, which is January 1st, right? And so, and we stayed up to watch some game. Well, it was like a one-sided game. Anyway, um, and, uh, and so we ate, you know, horribly uh, between Christmas and New Year's. And so we decided for the, for the next 26 days, starting on January uh, the 2nd, some of you are like, well, why, why 26 days? Well, because um, if you take January 2nd plus 26 days, that means January 28th, and that's my birthday, just to give you a fair warning and advance notice. And, uh, but we're also going to celebrate with cake, okay? So, um, so 26 days, and we were good. We were good on the 2nd. We were awesome. Kids didn't complain. We were like, no sugars, no, no starches. Um, if you eat a carb at our house, um, especially if you're the kid, because the adults, we don't typically eat carbs, you got to partner that with a protein. And so uh, a couple of changes, and we were good. We're good. Everything was good on Wednesday. And then Thursday came, day two. And like by the end of the day, our kids are like Jones in. They're like shaking. They're sweating. They're sucking their thumbs. They're like, we need sugar. We need sugar. So they're like, can we get ice cream? No, we can't get ice cream. It's day two. You see, so most people on day two, you start jonesing. You know, you start to have those withdrawals. And so you jump off the wagon and then it's hard to get back on because you're like, well, I already failed. So why get back on? And that's the, that's the problem with with most New Year's resolutions, is that we think that change can come in our life by like behavior modification and by changing things on the outside, action-oriented things, that it will actually change our lives for the better. And so people come up with lists, right? And so there are people that study um, people and people that study people, that was awesome, and, um, and they have uh, kind of diagnosed, and every year they kind of evaluate New Year's resolutions. So they'll send out surveys and they'll get people to submit surveys about New Year's resolutions. And so that's how they come up with the fact that about 84% of Americans come up with something new to do, a New Year's resolution list. And what they've found is that there are certain patterns and themes that show up on New Year's resolutions list. And so uh, just to, to list out the kind of top um, New Year's resolutions. Notice how much of this is just action-oriented. It's things that you can do. It's, it's behaviors that you can modify. The first one is physical fitness. I mean, you, you might be thinking along those lines too. You want to get physically fit. And so to contextualize that, people will put they, they need to get in shape, which means that they want to go work out or they want to exercise more, something that they want to do. Um, or they want to lose weight by dieting. And so they want to make some changes on their, their eating behavior. Uh, basically, eat less um, than, than you burn. And so they, they change their, their diet or they change their exercise. Number two on the list was time management. And so people want to work less and they want to spend more time with friends and with family. And actually included in that time management thing, they want to devote more time to church. And so for those of you that have that on your list, welcome to the vine. We're glad to have you this morning. Um, you're welcome uh, here. We're so glad 
So glad that you're here. Uh, so time management, uh, the way that we use and utilize our time. Um, number three on the list was had to do with finances. And so people contextualize that by saying that they want to save more money, something that you have to do where you actually have to transfer money into a savings account. Uh, or they want to get out of debt. So you have to take money from something and put it into um, that which you owe to someone or something else. Now, a little bit further down on the list, and it's actually over the past couple of years, it's been declining a little bit, which uh, makes my job either a little bit harder or a little bit easier, is that people want to pray more and read the Bible more. And so that's actually way down on the list, and it's moving further down on the list. And one thing that was common on most people's New Year's resolution list, um, but it's very gen general and generic, um, and it, it doesn't have um, specific action that is directed towards it, was to live life to the fullest. And, and if you're a person of faith or you're familiar with the vine, that, that phrase should sound familiar to you because one of the things that we talk about all the time is how that Jesus came not just so that we would have eternal life, but that we would have abundant life. He says in John 10, 10, that he came that we would have life to the fullest. And so generally the population and the culture kind of like has this like internal knowledge that they're not living into life at its fullest. And so they want to live life into the fullest, but they don't have it quantified. And so the, while that's up there in a very general way, the, the items that maybe we would say could get there because we're people of faith and we say that that full life is found in Jesus is further down on the list. Pray more, read the Bible more. And, and and what we know and what we're going to talk about throughout the series is that if we want to live life to the fullest, and I think it was said, Kevin said it earlier, that there's going to be breakthrough for some of you this year. If we want to experience life to the fullest, it doesn't come through behavior modification. It doesn't come through these action items that we can get to and get through that we're probably going to fail on day two or maybe give up on in six weeks. What we need to do is we need to back up and see that in order for us to experience life transformation or life to the fullest, we don't have to work on new things to do. We need to work on becoming someone new. We don't have to work on new things to do. We need to work on becoming someone new. And becoming someone new has less to do on what you do on the outside and more to do with what happens on the inside. And so what we're going to talk about through this series is how we can have a, a new you, how we can be transformed, but it's a transformation that comes from the inside out. And so we're going to talk about things like today, a new heart. Then we're going to talk about a new mind, a new spirit, and then a new body that will come last in the series. And so we're going to talk about these things that will actually produce lasting change in us and what we will find is that the things that we try to quantify through actions and behaviors that we think will help us live life to the fullest will actually kind of flow out of this new internal state of being. And this is not just truth for people of faith or that show up at church on the first Sunday of the new year. This is true across the board for everyone. And this has been known for a long time. If we get back to our ancestors in faith, our Jewish ancestors in faith, uh, they kind of built this into their, their every year. Uh, Rosh Hashanah. Anybody ever heard the words Rosh Hashanah? Yeah. Uh, so this is a Jewish festival that takes place every year at the beginning of a new Jewish calendar. They operate with a different calendar than we operate. So ours is January 1st. There's sometimes and it's flexible. It changes. It's a 10-day festival. It's probably um, one of the, the most participated in a festival 
festivals uh, throughout the year or celebrations throughout the year by Jewish people, even today, people that aren't really even like that engaged um, in their faith uh, will participate in that. And uh, the last part of Rosh Hashanah, Shana at the end, is actually a word with uh, double meaning or actually triple meaning if you consider the fact that it's also the name of my high school girlfriend, okay? Um, Liz doesn't like that joke, but anyway, you know, so it's got double meaning, Shana. The, the first meaning of Shana means to repeat, to repeat. And so what's interesting about a new year, whether it's January 1st or some other time in the new year of the Jewish calendar, is that basically what we say when that calendar flips is that we're just gonna repeat what we did the previous year. And so our earth is gonna repeat its revolution around the sun, right? 365.25 days. It's gonna repeat around the sun. It's gonna rotate. And then every day, our earth is gonna repeat the rotation on its axis. And so for 24 hours, it's gonna repeat and it's gonna move around one time. And it's gonna feel like Groundhog Day for us, right? And, and, and that's why like students, sorry, you're gonna get up tomorrow, you're gonna go to school and then you're gonna do that the next day and the next day and the next day and you're gonna do that. And adults, you're probably gonna get up tomorrow and you're gonna go to work and it's gonna feel repetitive and, and redundant. It's gonna feel like Groundhog Day. And if you don't have to get up to go to school or to go to work, God bless you, I'm jealous and envious and the Bible says not to be, but I am. Um, but anyway, so like that's what life feels like. It just feels like we repeat over and over. In the new year, Shauna, the first meaning is to repeat. We're gonna repeat what we've been doing. But the second meaning of Shauna means to change, to change. So we're gonna repeat what we've been doing. And you know what? This year, my guess is that you're gonna repeat a lot of things that happened in 2018. Even though maybe some of you are going, hey, yeah, I gotta, you know, like 2018, we're gonna change some things and, and we're gonna move on. Same things are gonna happen. You're gonna go to work, you're gonna go to school. Uh, life's gonna happen where you're gonna have some expenses come up and you're not gonna be ready for them. Um, maybe you'll be ready for them, but it's gonna make a dent into your Dave Ramsey plan. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna have some loss of, of, of things, maybe loss of income, maybe loss of friendships, relationships, maybe even loss of life that matters to you. Uh, you're gonna have all kinds of highs, you're gonna have all kinds of lows, things that make us happy, things that make us sad. And, and so there's gonna be a lot of things that repeat, but when it comes to doing something new or celebrating a new year, we also need to change. And what we need to change is something that takes place on the inside. That's why Rosh Hashanah is 10 days of repentance. And we talk about it all the time here at the Vine. The word repent actually means to change your mind. It means to change your thinking, not your behavior. And we'll talk about this, we'll talk about this next week specifically. But I grew up in a context of faith in a church where it was like, repent, repent. And it felt like, hey, just stop doing what you've been doing that's bad. When repent actually means stop thinking the way that you've been thinking that's bad. And, and so Rosh Hashanah is 10 days of repentance. It's a 10 days of internal change because what, what our Jewish ancestors know and what is still true today is that internal change leads to external change, not the other way around. Jesus did not come to modify your behavior. He came to modify your becoming. You are a human being before you are a human doing. And so in this series, we seek to become someone new. God is doing something new. And he's been doing something new since the beginning of time. 
Uh, I, I call this the theology of new. You might not have ever heard of it because I came up with the word. It's the theology of new. No books have been written about it yet, but actually, you know, Gus and I, we've actually started talking about writing a book called The Theology of New, where we take a look at of how God is doing new things and how God wants to do new things. And, and uh, it starts all the way at the beginning of time with creation. God does a new thing. He creates uh, heaven and earth, and he creates all that occupies heaven and earth. And then um, God's restoring or renewing and making a new heaven and a new earth. And that's when this book comes to completion, when God gives us new heaven and new earth. And in the process in between, God's doing new things. And, and people in the Bible wrote about that over and over and over. The word new shows up so many times in scripture. God is so doing a new thing in the pages of scripture. And, and one of those uh, one of my favorite passages comes from uh, a prophet who lived about 2,800 years ago. His name was Isaiah, and he's one of the, uh, the major prophets in the Bible. And Isaiah wrote about this new thing. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're just going to hit this really quickly. Um, the reference for you is Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19. Isaiah 43, verse 19. We've got the words on the screen. Uh, Isaiah says, Behold, I am doing a what? Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Some of you, I believe, came into this place today because you feel like 2018 was a wilderness or a desert. A wilderness where you just kind of felt like you were wandering around and life was dry and it was desolate. And maybe you felt like you were in a desert place where you're, you're just kind of parched for anything that would be life. And, and and the, the prophet Isaiah says 2,800 years ago, it's still true today, that God's doing a new thing. God is always doing a new thing. So while you're wandering in a wilderness, he's preparing a promised land. And, and while you feel like life is a desert, there's a spring that is about to gush forth that's gonna create a new river of circumstances and situations in your life. And, and I believe that God wants you to know that he's doing a new thing, but I also believe that God wants to ask you this question, do you perceive it? Do you perceive it? And the word perceive is, is beyond this, like, this, this knowledge that, that a pastor could get up on a Sunday morning. And I, I bet that I'm not the only pastor on the first Sunday of the new year that's talking about God doing a new thing. I, I bet that I'm not. The question is not, is God doing a new thing? The question is, do you perceive it? Do you sense it? Do you feel it? And will you allow God to do that new thing in your life. And so as a student, I don't know what that new thing looks like. I don't know what the wilderness looks like. I don't know what the, 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 the desert looks like as an adult. I don't know what that specific wilderness or, or desert looks like for you. But what I do know is that God wants to do a new thing in it. God wants to do a new thing in your life, but he wants to first start like through your life in it. And so do you perceive it? And part of perceiving the new thing that wants that God wants to do, is to forget about the old things. It's to forget about the former things. In fact, if you back up one verse in verse 18, Isaiah says, forget about the former things. It says, do not focus on the past. You know why? The past is in the past and you can't change it. Past is in the past and you can't change it. Now, there might be some consequences from our past that live into our present and into our current, but, but when it comes to the past being the past, it is done, it is finished, you can't change it. Only God can change it. Only God can change it. So our focus, our perception is not on the past, 
It's in the future because God is doing a new thing. And the new thing that he is doing starts in you. You know how I know that? Because of Jesus. And the people that wrote about Jesus, specifically this guy named Paul. If you don't know who Paul is, um, Paul is a guy who, um, before having like a personal experience with Jesus, he was like anti-Jesus and he was anti-Jesus followers. In fact, he had Christians um, arrested. He had them beaten. He had them persecuted. He had some of them put to death. Then he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus and, um, and then his life changes. And so he starts preaching Jesus and he starts leading people to faith in Jesus. He starts establishing churches and he wrote back to a lot of them. And in a lot of his writings about Jesus and God doing a new thing in a person's life through Jesus, he talks about how we are becoming something new. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, you are now a new creation if you're in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the what? New has come. The, the old is what? It's passed away. It's dead. It's done. Can't change that. But the new has come, and the new is coming. So God wants to do a new thing, and he wants to do a new thing in you. He wants to do a new thing in you. And we'll talk about the ways that God wants to do a new thing. New heart, new mind, new spirit, and new body. But it starts with the heart. It starts with the heart. I love doing word studies of the Bible. Um, the word heart shows up in the Bible over 860 times. In my, um, my study Bible at home, I uh, always circle the word heart. Every time I come across the word heart, I circle it. It seems like God's concerned about the heart a lot. Um, not only do I circle it, but when, I, when I'm using my electronic version, my U version of the Bible and I'm going through, I highlight it in red, heart, red, they just seem to go together. So anytime you see the red in my electronic version of the Bible, it's because it's the word heart. And so the word heart shows up a lot. It shows up a lot in the Old Testament. And when Old Testament writers were writing about the heart, um, it was a reference to a lot of things. It was a broad terminology. They knew um, when the Old Testament was written, they knew that the heart was an organ of the body, that it was a literal organ of the body, but it was only the only organ of the body that they could actually feel. And so they felt like it took on more meaning than just like a biological life form that like when it stops, life stops. They thought it contained more than that because it was constantly moving and you could feel it moving. And so that they thought that it represented the center of our thoughts. Um, they thought that it rep represented the center of our, our feelings. Um, what well, they also knew that it was, it was kind of a representation of the center of our desires, that which we desire. Now, we're gonna see this a little bit more next week, okay? So I don't wanna give you too much. But when you go to the New Testament, it gives us a little bit of context for Old Testament. And the word, um, the center of our thoughts is given a new word um, in the New Testament, and that's called our mind. So we'll talk about how um, our heart, even though it could be translated in Old Testament as center of thoughts, and the New Testament is given a new word called mind. We'll talk about that next week. So for the purpose of our conversation today, because of how Jesus gives us context for heart that's used in the Old Testament, we're gonna talk about how God wants to give you a new heart or a new center of feelings and desires. God wants to give you a new heart or a center of feelings and desires. God wants to change your desires because here's what God knows. Your desires drive your decisions. If you're taking notes, that's a good place 
and a good thing to write down. Your desires drive your decisions. And you and I right now are the sum of all of our decisions in life. It's crazy to think about, it blows me away. But you being here right now, actually all of your decisions in life, however old you are, however many decisions you've made, they have all led you to this place where you are right in this moment. That means that there is power in this moment and then we should view every moment as being powerful because all of our decisions have led us right to where we are. And so if God wants to change us where we are, he needs to start by changing the thing that drives the decisions that moves us to the places where we are. And that comes with our heart. Jesus talks about desires being an uh, influential part of our life and how everything flows out of the heart. Everything flows out of the heart. So what we see externally comes from this place of an inward desire. And so I wanna make an argument today that God wants to give you a new heart. God wants to give you a new heart and maybe God wants to renew your heart today. You know, in the Old Testament, when it came to the heart in the context of our desires, um, there were a lot of people that said that we needed a new heart, that we need a new heart. And and we've got to start, in order to have a new heart, we've got to start with this knowledge that we need a new heart. Um, this guy named Moses, maybe you've heard of him. Uh, Moses, he, he prayed that, that people would receive a circumcision of the heart. Now, that's a, a weird kind of picture, um, but, but, but that we would receive a circumcision of the heart. Basically, that God would cu- cut away the old and, and that we would have new. Um, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, who's a, a prophet, what he says about the heart is that the heart is, is evil and, um, and that it deceives us. So what he's saying is that w- when we're born with our, our kind of spiritual heart, our, our, the, the heart that we're born with, the desires that we're born with, the feelings that we're born with, um, they're evil above all else and they deceive us. So, so that when we make decisions with our natural kind of desires and feelings, they're, they're gonna lead us in the wrong decisions to make. It's why Ezekiel, another prophet in the Bible, he says, he he asked that God would take away the hard heart and replace it with a soft heart. And so what you find throughout the pages of scripture is people recognizing that our our heart that we're born with, our feelings and our desires, they have this evil bent to them. Um, And when you use the word evil, it's in the context of just saying, hey, we're against the things that God's for. So we rebel against God. In the same way that a child would rebel against a parent who's trying to tell the child what to do because they know that that would prosper their child and lead them to the best life, but they don't want to do it. That we would rebel against God, rebel against God's calling, rebel against God's character because our desires are selfish, they're for ourselves, for our own gain. And there's this call throughout the Old Testament, God, would you give us new? And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus, he's the circumcision of heart. Jesus is the one that breaks away the hardness of heart and replaces it with a new heart, a new desire, one that impacts our decisions. How do we get that new heart? Well, we're gonna do a case study this morning from a guy who I'm pretty fond of. His name's David. He's got a great name. And um, 
David, if you're not familiar with David in the Bible, uh, maybe you're familiar with sports references that, that uh, refer to David and Goliath. It's a reference to an underdog that's going against a giant, you know, this uh, opponent that like seems unbeatable. And um, so he's a reference to that. This, this guy, David, beats Goliath in a, in a battle. Um, he's a mighty warrior. So he goes off the battle after that and he just like, he starts slaying the enemy. He's a mighty warrior. Um, he actually ends up becoming king of Israel and he's, He's the best king that Israel ever had. And a lot of people would say he's probably from a a world history perspective, one of the best kings ever because he was able to unite some kingdoms for the duration of his, his kingship. And um, so he's this great king, but, but perhaps the greatest attribute of David is that he was called a man after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. And when he's given that title at first, we don't know exactly what that means. But then later on in the Bible, it references that David was a man after God's own heart because he obeyed God. He made decisions to walk in obedience. Decisions that were driven by what? Desire. So David being a man after God's own heart, he had a desire for God's desires. You hearing this? Are you you tracking? He had a desire for God's desires, so he decided to be obedient, and he's given the title. And he's the only person that has been given this title, a man after God's own heart. His desires were for God's desires. Therefore, he walked in obedience. Now, he had this heart, and he had this desire, but he wasn't perfect. In fact, if you know his story, there's a portion of his his kingship that is actually, um, I mean, it's is, is pretty scandalous. Um, he's king and he has a neglect of his kingship and his duties. So he um, doesn't do what kings are supposed to do. It kind of leads him to a little bit of a slip where he actually lusts after a woman who is not his wife or one of his wives, which is a sermon for another day. And, um, and so he pursues her, has a relationship with her. She gets pregnant to cover up that. He, he actually um, has, a, has her husband murdered on the front lines of battle. And so there's this big scandalous part because he's not perfect and no person is perfect. Where he has this moment where his, his heart after God's heart needed renewing and it wasn't being renewed. And um, so he's confronted about this by a guy named Nathan and Nathan knows the secret. And so he's confronted about it. And after his confrontation, after his confrontation, he pins and writes down one of the most powerful psalms that is written. It's a prayer, it's a song that was written about what needs to take place when it comes to our desires that aren't God's desires. And so if you brought your Bibles or you've got a Bible app, bless you, I wanna invite you to turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, I wanna invite you to go there. Psalm 51 is David writing a song, a prayer, right after he's confronted by this prophet named Nathan about his transgressions and his sin. And what I want you to do when we read this together is I want you to pay attention to how David's not focused on outward behavior, but the inner state of being, and how David knows that an inner change will bring to an outer change, but focus on how he knows that needs to take place. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Just to quickly point out, everything flows from God's love. Like everything flows from God's love. 
and we are reminded of that by David. According to your abundant mercy, which is not giving us what we deserve, blot out my transgressions. Transgressions is kind of a synonym for sin. Uh, contextually, it's a little bit different than sin. Don't need to get caught up in that right now. Um, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Again, iniquity is a synonym for sin. Uh, it's a little bit different contextually. We won't get into that. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I'm gonna stop right there for just a moment. Pay attention. Has he said anything about outward behavior? Nothing. I mean, he, he, he's referencing it, but it, what he's referencing is that it's coming from a place that's wrong within him, a desire that is wrong within him. It, furthermore, what he points to is the fact that something we've already talked about, we're born with this desire to, to rebel against God. He was born into this since, since he was in his mother's womb. He was, he was conceived into this. It's a reference that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My, my guess is that when you hear that, you go, yeah, I get that. I get that because you're not perfect, right? Right? Because you're not perfect, right? If you are perfect, you're not allowed here. Vine, no perfect people allowed, okay? So, so as long as we're on the same page, we're good, right? David says, hey, I was born into this. This is like the outflow of my desire to rebel, it's to sin, it's to transgress, it's iniquity, all right? But then listen to this. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, not external behavior, inner state of being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret what? Heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Not on the outside, not on the exterior, but the heart. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean what? Heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me, uh, uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to me. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O oh God, O oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite what? Heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I mean, David's whole prayer there after he's been confronted about not being obedient to God, where his decisions were in disobedience, was about his inner state of being. And then he says, hey, if you'll do this, then the outflow of this will be, I will teach transgressors your ways. I will praise you. Other people will come back then everything that I do from a spiritual perspective, read the Bible more, pray more, attend worship more, all that stuff, then you'll be pleased in that. Because what God wants to see in our life, what God desires in our life, is that we would have a new desire for him. Where does that begin? It begins by understanding that in order to get a new heart, we've got to crush the old heart. 
A broken and contrite heart is what you desire. So when we recognize that our desires do not match up with God's desires, we gotta break it. That's why we sing a song in the crushing, in the pressing. The only way to get to a new heart is for, for us to say, hey God, I confess this to you. I recognize that my desires are not your desires. My desires are for me, my desires are selfish. So God, hey, I'm presenting it to you in your mercy and your love. Would you break it? Would you smash it? Would you create in me a clean heart? And this is what is available through Jesus. Because when Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, that broken and contrite heart that we present to him through confession is able to be remolded and reshaped and renewed. So we say to God, God, I confess. My heart is evil, it's deceitful. My desires are not your desires. Create in me a clean heart. And if we'll do that, 1 John 1.9 says, if we'll confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and he is righteous. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to his promise. All you have to do is utter a prayer. God, a broken heart is what you desire and what I desire is a new heart. And God's faithful to give you one. When, when God gives you a new heart, then the next step, according to David's son Solomon, who wrote some things in the Old Testament, is to guard our hearts. Is that we need to guard our hearts above all else. Like we need to protect our desire and our desire for God. And I, I think David, even in his Psalm, he gets to how we guard our hearts best. And that is to renew ourselves in the presence of God. Um, notice what David prayed when he said, created me a clean heart. He also prayed what? Renew a right spirit within me. Uh, he, he knows that, that we need to renew our, ourselves and our hearts in the presence of God. He, he prays this prayer. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. At 9.15, I was reading that and I was just like getting ahead of myself. And, and I said, um, I actually said while I was reading, take your Holy Spirit from me. No, 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 not take your Holy Spirit from me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. David did not intend for God to take the Spirit from him. He said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He understands that the key to a renewed heart, once we've been given a heart, is the presence of God. And a restored joy of salvation. When you've received a new heart by asking Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, we come back with a joy and a thanksgiving in the presence of God for the salvation that he's given us. That's why I pray pretty much the same prayer at the beginning of prayer every time I pray. Now, I'm sure our staff at staff meetings, they get tired of hearing me pray the beginning prayer. I'm sure you get tired of hearing me pray the same thing at the beginning of prayers. If, if you haven't got tired of it, this is because you don't attend church enough, right? So like, it, and it's always, hey, God, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. And thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Because, because I believe that in order for us to guard the new heart that he's given us, we gotta go back to the place where he gave us the new heart. So we renew our heart by asking God to renew the joy of our salvation. We go back to that moment. For me, it was when I was 17. We go back to that moment for you where you knew Jesus had died for you, not for your pastor, not for your youth pastor, not for your parents or your grandparents, but for you, and you receive that forgiveness for yourself. Return, restore to me the joy of my salvation. This is how we guard 
our hearts. We need to be thankful for our salvation and restore joy to our salvation by renewing ourselves in the presence of God. Um, we came across a story in prep for this message about a girl named Abby, who's 18, six years ago, she received a heart transplant. And for some reason, a, a local news outlet decided that they were gonna pick up her story about her heart transplant. And the first part of the story is about her need for a heart transplant had been for a long time. And the second part of the story was about what happened after she re received the new heart. Like she thought the heart was working too well, like because she could feel the pulse of her, her heart. Like, um, and then, and then the, the story takes a weird twist where, where for the majority of the rest of it, she just talks about her, her, um, her grief over the loss, but also her joy and her thanks for um, the sacrifice that was made for her to be able to receive this new heart. Instead of me telling you about it, let's take a look. It was April 13th, 2012. Abby became the recipient of an organ donor. I felt amazing. I had so much energy and I had never felt my own heart beating like without a stethoscope before. And so I thought it was working too well at first. I kept asking, it's, it's working too well, why is it, it's like working too well. And I like could feel it beating in my fingers and my toes. But she also knew her gift of life meant someone else losing their life. I still feel sad sometimes. I think I had a little bit of survivor's guilt almost. Her donor was a young teenage boy. I think about my donor family every day, especially today because it's the one year mark. She goes on to say how grateful she is and how she sends notes frequently thanking, thanking them for that new heart. That's what it means to guard our new hearts. It's, it's to, renew, to renew our hearts in the presence of God. And we do that through thanking God for our salvation, having a restored sense of salvation. And from that new heart will flow new things. So this morning, as we close our service with a song, um, on your way out, you're gonna receive a, a little card. Our ushers will have those at the doors. And, and on the front of it, it's got our new, you know, new you series title. And then underneath it, it says a new heart. And on the back of it, it, it has one verse that we wanna encourage you to pray every day and to memorize uh, for the rest of this week. It's Psalm 5110. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And we believe that if you'll pray this prayer daily, that if you'll pray this prayer daily, you will begin to see that God is making you new and will do new things in and through you. Stir a passion in my heart, God, let it overflow, let it overflow. Stir a passion in my heart,
Oh, Jesus, you are 